Let's just uh, pray this morning to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, we thank you for your gospel that saves us. Lord, we thank you that we can come this morning now to hear and open your word, that, Lord, you would speak to us, that our hearts and minds would be open to hearing from you this morning, and uh, that, Lord, what we hear and what you speak to us, what your spirit convicts in our hearts today, would be something that we hold on to, and that, Lord, we don't ignore when we leave this place, but, Lord, we hold on to that firmly and that we follow through on what you've convicted our hearts of by your word and by your spirit this morning. So may you please be with us and speak to each one of us here today. I've got a question for you. What does gospel ministry look like? What does it look like? Does it look like what I'm doing here today? Sure. You know, reading the scriptures, preaching the scriptures, encouraging, building up, training, equipping, and a, you know, us all to apply biblical truths to our lives for the glory of God and the furthering of his mission here in this place. Yes. You know, that, that, that looks like gospel ministry. Does it look like what we were doing, Rob? Does it look like what you were doing on Thursday as you were calling your customers and taking orders and, and on the road visiting people in Shepparton, I think you were off to on Thursday, was it? You know, does it, does it look like you selling your stuff, plying your trade? Does it look like, uh, Lyle, what you were doing a couple of weeks ago, camping out in the swag with your family and, you know, sitting by a campfire and hunting or whatever else you were doing probably? Does it look like what Russell was doing? Where's Russell gone? Oh, there he is, out the back there. Russell, does it look like what you were doing as you collected the donations that we give as a church for loaves and fishes and taking it there to loaves and fishes Christian caring? Does it look like what our fame were doing a weekend or two ago when we went for a hike through the Warby Ranges? What does gospel ministry look like? See, for many of us, I think we have this idea planted firmly in our minds that gospel ministries, you know, it's really only for the professionals, like like pastors, or or, or you know, it's really only done when you're on some sort of formalised ministry team that's approved by the elders and leaders of the church, you know. But but if we were asked, if we were to ask Paul what he thought gospel ministry looked like, well, I almost think that he'd he'd almost not understand how he was to answer the question because I don't think the question would probably make sense to him because the very concept of gospel ministry being anything other than how we live our lives would probably be foreign to his example and to his experience. Now you might think though that Paul, however, he had the freedom to to just go into the synagogues and he was a gifted preacher and so he had this thing going on but, but that's different to us today, Aaron, you know. We've got family, we've got a job, we've got to look after, but we have responsibilities. Well, today I want to look at how Paul did life and ministry as we look at Acts chapter 18 today. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 18. Um, so if you've got one, then definitely we'll be going through that this morning. Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
So having just preached in the Areopagus in Athens, informing them of that they that he knew the unknown God that they had made inscription for, and that the unknown God is actually Creator God, and after deconstructing their worldview that there wasn't a God of the sun, the moon, the mountains, the stars, the rivers, but there was a Creator God who created and made them all, and did not need to be served by human hands, but actually gives us all we need to live and move and breathe, He then reconstructs their cultural framework by calling them to repent of their sins and put their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. If you remember last week, you know, we we saw there were three responses to that message. There were those who mocked him, people who engaged and were happy to hear, and then there were those who responded in faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where Paul just was. And so once he'd done that, he then travelled to Corinth. And now Corinth was 74 kilometres west of Athens. Yes, west of Athens. Now there's Athens, Corinth is right here. So he moves over there and Corinth was uh, a Roman colony. And it was the most influential city in the province of Achaia, both politically and economically. It lied at the foot of the Acro-Corinth which was a small but very steep mountain in southern Greece. I saw pictures of it and it was a little bit unimpressive, so that's why I didn't make it on the screen. But it benefited from the mountain spring, which brought fresh water to the city. And and although it was inland, um, it, it was a major part in connecting the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea ports. So as you can see, there's water all around. And so there's a, a if they wanted to get from here to there, uh, it was not very easy to come all the way around, lots of shipwrecks. So they actually would, what they'd do is they actually pick up ships and carry them across the six kilometers because the, the narrowest part of this peninsula was just six kilometers. And so they would pick up ships and portage them. But yeah, it's basically they just hook this ship up and carry it. Now I'm not sure about you and I, but it's pretty easy to pick up a, a, a tinny. Um, but these were big ships, and so I don't think they actually lifted them and carried them. They probably just rolled them along rocks and, I don't know, using logs. Yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yep, I'm right up there. Um, and uh, so there's even records in the first century of rulers trying to build a canal system to run right through. That finally actually got built in the 19th century, and so there now is a canal that that goes through, um, and the city was built, was rebuilt, I should say, because it got destroyed, but it was rebuilt by uh, Roman freedmen, and it was a very pagan city with many monuments to different gods and multiple temples to multiple gods, and wanton sexuality was very common. And it was here that Paul meets up with some Jews who had been evicted, if you like, from Athens. Um, and their eviction was likely the result of disturbances in the Jewish synagogues created by the Christian message. So Aquila and Priscilla, they had a lot in common with Paul. Their trade, being tent makers, was one of them. And it's quite possible that they were already Christians when they fled to Rome. Corinth had a, a fairly large Jewish contingent at the time, and so Paul was working and plying his trade during the week and then heading along to the synagogue every Sabbath 
um, at trying to reason with the Jews and persuade them along with other God-fearing people who were attending the synagogue. So Paul was working during the week to support himself and others. And then on the weekend, he'd be preaching the gospel, teaching how the scriptures point to Jesus as Messiah and calling people to repent and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was doing what most of us have done our whole lives, right? He was working to provide, to put food on his on, on, on the table, to pay the bills. And, and then on, on the weekends, he was headed along to church to worship God, to hear from the word, to fellowship with family, be encouraged and built up, ready to go back to work. Paul's experience was actually not so different to yours and to mine. His life was pretty much the same when he was in Corinth. Well, I'm just glad we're in the 21st century, not the first. He was a tradie who worked hard. And then he interacted with people who desperately needed the message of salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. And and he would preach the gospel and he'd reason with them, trying to persuade people with the message of the gospel that they need to repent of their sin and believe in the person and work of Jesus so they will be saved from the wrath of God and his righteous judgment. And I'll tell you one thing. Paul was persistent. Every Sabbath he went back and back and back and back. And then later, even when Silas and Timothy arrived from their journey to visit the Macedonian churches and brought with them a contribution for Paul's ministry, he was actually then had the privilege of being freed up from having to work in his trade. And so he could fully devote himself to preaching and testifying about Jesus. And so he now does it full time as we read in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he works even harder. He preached the gospel and testifies about Jesus every day, not just on the Sabbath. But his message seemed to fall on deaf ears. And more than that, opposition actually grew towards Paul. Verse 6, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader and his entire household believed in the Lord and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And I love this passage here because can you imagine this scene, right? These people in the synagogue oppose Paul and become abusive towards him, so he shakes out his clothes. I don't know what it looks like, but but I don't know. But what it is, a commentarist told me this. It's an act of rejection. We don't have that in our in our culture today, do we? To shake off your clothes. You know, or it's a bit like kicking the dust off your feet, you know, when Jesus said. It's rejecting them. And he tells them that the responsibility for their judgment before God is on them. Paul had been faithful. He had faithfully preached the gospel and tried his absolute best to speak the truth so they would believe and be persuaded. He was faithful in the duty that God had called him to. He preached the gospel over and over and over again, so he had a clear conscience. He had done all he could. Their rejection of Christ was on them. No part of these Jews' failure to believe could be attributed to his failure to tell them about Christ 
because he did not fail at that. He succeeded in telling them about Jesus. They just didn't believe. And I'm going to tell you this. When we are here on a Sunday, you will probably get sick of hearing the gospel because I believe that that's what we're faithfully called to do. So just about every week, you will hear the gospel being preached because that's what I'm called to do as a pastor, as a preacher, as someone who is charged with the responsibility of teaching from the word of God. You know, the gospel is central to that. And so you will hear it over and over again. Who's sick of it? Good, because you're going to keep on hearing it over and over again. My question today to us is, are we as persistent in our efforts to win people for Christ as what Paul was? Are we as persistent in our efforts to tell people about Jesus and not just tell him about the personal work of Jesus Christ, but to keep telling them, to keep preaching the gospel, to keep on persuading people with the good news of the gospel, to keep telling people that we are all sinners, that we all fall short of the glory of God and are in need of a saviour. And that saviour was sent to us as an expression of God's love for us in the person of Jesus Christ who died for us paying the penalty for our sin so that we could by grace in faith believe and be saved. Are we as persistent with that message as Paul was with those Jews? It's a good question, isn't it? Because we should be as persistent. We should be following Paul's example here. And he persisted for a long time. But there does come a time when it is the right thing to move on. And that is exactly what Paul does. You see, these people were stubborn. They're even on the verge of violence. The Bible tells us that they became abusive, they opposed and reviled him. There's some pretty strong words. And so, what does Paul do? Paul, he doesn't go across the city. He doesn't even go down the street. No, no, no. He goes next door. He goes next door to the synagogue, to Justice's house, who, uh, no, Tidious Justice, that's the dude, who, who obviously, if you've got your house next to the synagogue, it's not going to be small, right? You know, it's this large home where he's then able to continue his ministry with people who are receptive and those who are eager to hear, and those who respond in faith to the grace offered in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And many people in Corinth are saved and baptized, including the ruler of the synagogue. Isn't that amazing? So he has been preaching for ages in the synagogue, almost gets hounded out there with violence, goes next door, but yet saves the leader of the synagogue. His persistence pays off, but what he does is he then focuses his efforts and energies on those who might be receptive to the gospel. He doesn't just keep on blindly batting away time and time again in an unfertile field. He chooses where he invests his time, his energy and his effort and he chooses to invest that in an area that is fertile. And that's an important lesson for us. We don't just keep batting away. We should be persistent, but we should also focus and, and invest our energies in the people that are interested. You know, if you're not interested, well, I'm sorry, I'm still going to preach the gospel to you, but I'm not going to spend all my energy and effort and time on you. I'm going to invest that more in, in an area where the people are responsive and where a greater work can be done. See, because it says here, many people in Corinth were saved. Would that have happened if he just continued on in the Jewish synagogue? I don't think so. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. 
Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. A year and a half. You know, we find out that during this time, Paul writes 1 and 2 Thessalonians. But what we've learnt so far in the book of Acts is, where the gospel is faithfully preached, there will always be opposition. And so the Jews, they bring Paul before Gallio, Gallio, the proconsul of the region. They basically want him convicted of blasphemy. But they were denied even in a hearing because Gallio didn't even engage in their argument. He's just like, nah, don't want to hear it. Nah, stop them dead in the tracks. Nah, not hearing that. But the crowd, they wanted someone's blood. And so they turned on Sosthenes, who was the synagogue leader, and they beat him in front of Gallio, who showed no concern. Yeah, you're just beating up one of your own dudes, fair enough. So that they, that they even turned on their own. Now, I'm not sure whether Sosthenes followed the way of Crispus, who was the synagogue leader, and started listening to Paul, and, and was actually a convert. We're not told that. But we're told that Sosthenes is now the synagogue leader, Christmas was before, now they're Sosthenes, and now they beat Sosthenes up. And it, it, it does my head in that these mobs of Jews seem to continually just want blood, yet they miss Jesus. I just, yeah, it does my head in. Anyway, I'll ask Jesus when I get there what, what, what went on. My goodness. But what we see here is that Paul's actually protected and he's delivered. And so his deliverance here is actually further confirmation of God's promise that he'd have a successful ministry in Corinth and would suffer, suffer no further harm. And Paul continued to stay in Corinth even longer. As, as verse 18 says, he stayed for some time, even after this 18 months. And uh, he goes with, with Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus via Antioch in Syria. And he leaves them there in Ephesus, himself declining an invitation to stay there and minister in the synagogue. But he vows to return. And instead he goes on to Caesarea, onto Jerusalem and then Antioch. And after some time back at I guess his, his home church, his home base in Antioch, he sets off again. Verse 23, After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Frisia, strengthening all the disciples. And we are then introduced to a new character in Acts. And his name is Apollos. Acts 18 verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now, what do we know about Apollos? Apollos was from Alexandria, which was an intellectual centre in Egypt with a world-renowned library. This place was huge. It was massive. It had all the books in scrolls. And Apollos's eloquence was undoubtedly accompanied by great learning, particularly in the Old Testament scriptures. He's described as being competent and powerful in his use of the Old Testament scriptures in public preaching debate. And as we see later, he's no doubt accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Apollos knew only the baptism of John, 
which suggests that he had not heard about the baptism that Jesus commanded after his resurrection and began to be administered to all believers in Christ on and after the day of Pentecost. And so his knowledge of the Christian gospel must have been deficient in some ways, though he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus as far as he knew them. He certainly knew about Jesus' life and teachings, but he may not have known about Jesus' death and resurrection or about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So Priscilla and Aquila, they take Apollos aside and explain to him all the things about Jesus that he did not yet know. They fill in all the blanks and they give him a full picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Apollos, he then goes to Corinth with a letter from the disciples at Ephesus to the disciples at Corinth to welcome him. And in Corinth, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed as he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. We know that Apollos had a very successful and fruitful ministry in Corinth because Paul acknowledges Apollos' ministry in his first letter to the Corinthian church. And even after Paul had spent 18 months in the city, more than that, the church still benefited from this help from a skilled scholar and speaker who had advanced academic knowledge accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Apollos faithfully served the church and continued to preach the gospel. And so Apollos was very different to Paul. Apollos was not a tradie, he was a scholar. He had learned and studied in the world's centre of knowledge and thought. He was a Jew and had been taught the Old Testament and knew it inside out. And he saw the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But he could then do nothing more but, but leave Alexandra and go and travel and share about Jesus and about the Messiah. And imagine as a Jew, your whole life you had been taught that you were to expect a Messiah. Apollos' whole life he had learned of the prophecies about Messiah and when he comes across the personal work of Jesus Christ, he is convinced that Jesus is Messiah and he can't contain it. And not only that, but he knows that his fellow Jews had missed it. And so he leaves Alexandria and he goes to tell people about Messiah, about Jesus, about this person and work. And so this was like everyone in the entire nation, his whole people group, knowing that a saviour was going to be coming and everyone looking out for that saviour, yet missing him. And Apollos knows and he sets about making sure that Jews were informed and he helps them see the truth. Paul was a tradie, Apollos was a scholar, yet both had a massive impact and fruitful ministry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question is, what does gospel ministry look like? Does it look like making a tent? Does it look like studying in the best university of the day and age? Yeah. Does it look like engaging with people in the workplace with the gospel? Does it look like proclaiming the gospel in our churches and in the street? Yeah. Does it look like loving for and caring for our family? Does it look like meeting with a friend for a coffee? Yeah. Does it look like taking someone aside and, and gently helping them to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ? Yes. See, gospel ministry is all of these things and more. Because as I said last week, God's ransom and rescue of us out from our past is so that God can now use us 
to be his ambassadors back into those places. God has put you here in order to engage people just like you were. That's why God has placed us in this church for a time such as this, to be active in gospel ministry. Whether you are a scholar, whether you are a tradie, whether you work in an office, whether you're a cop, or whether you're retired, you know what? It doesn't really matter because God has rescued you for gospel ministry. Whether you're a teacher, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you go for the cats or for the saints, it doesn't matter. God has rescued you for gospel ministry. He has gifted you with knowledge, with experience, with passions, with training, with his grace and mercy so that you can fulfill the gospel ministry that he has called you to. As a church, I firmly believe it's our role to help equip, encourage and release each person into fruitful ministry for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. Apollos used his intellect, his intelligence and his knowledge of the scripture to minister to people. Paul used his experience of coming face to face with Jesus and he used his trade to support himself and others. He used his passion for the gospel to minister to people. What God has given you, he's given you so that you can use that to share the gospel and minister to other people. Maybe you have a heart for compassion for the homeless. And you want to engage with the Winter Night Shelter Program pilot that is uh, the, the Wangaratta churches are looking to begin. Well, you know what? There is another meeting tonight at 5 o'clock to pray for this. Tonight's being held at Victory Church because the salvos weren't available this week. But if it's something that you're passionate about in, in reaching into with compassion into the, the, the homeless people and those shelters and stuff, then please go along to Victory Church tonight at 5 o'clock and find out more information and, and, and get involved. Maybe you've got a heart, though, for, for young mums in our community. You know, there's one option. You can join the, the Mainly Music team and, and invite maybe a few young mums out for coffee and just to be an, a face of encouragement and a friendly face of love and support. You know, that, that's another option. Maybe you've got a heart for hospitality. Make a meal and take it to someone just to bless them and, and show Christ's love in a practical way or, or invite you know, a family over for tea. Maybe you have a heart for connecting with people. You know, if you love bushwalking, invite someone on a bushwalk. If you love golf, invite them for a game of golf. Graham, if you love, what do you love? Old cars. Well, invite them to go and work on an old car or see a car show. I didn't know about that. That about you? That's good. Lovely. Old cars. Great. There's so many different things we can do. We can invite people on a picnic. We can invite them to the footy or to watch a movie. You get the picture, right? There are countless opportunities for us to personally get involved in gospel ministry each and every day. They're not difficult because God has created us for it. He has gifted us uniquely with things that only we can do in service of him. That's why you're here. That's why when you were saved, you went whisked off to heaven. He's got work for you to do and he's been building you to do it. When we live for ourselves... We want what we want. But when we live for Jesus, we want what he wants. And that's gospel ministry. And so my, my challenge for us today is where can you be purposeful in gospel ministry in areas of your life, in areas of your passion, of your interest, using your intellect, using your experience, using your skills, your knowledge, who you are, who God has made you to be, 
where are those areas where you can be an impact in the, our community for the gospel and for the and let people know and, and share the personal work of Jesus Christ? That's our challenge today. And I don't want us just to leave here and go, yeah, I, you know, I really feel like Aaron, you know, that was a great word, you know, that that uh, you know, it was it was really good to hear from the scriptures, you know, to see Paul and to see Apollos, and that was so different. It had a massive impact on the church in Corinth. One was a scholar, one was a trader. Yes, yeah, yeah, oh, that's great, Aaron. You know, that's wonderful. And then leave here and just do everything else you've normally been doing, and completely forget that actually God has you for a purpose here. It's it's, it's gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed that you are a God that has saved us and you've saved us for a reason. You've saved us so that other people might be saved through you using us to reach them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit that when those opportunities to interact with people come along, that, Lord, you would, by your power and grace, give us the words of life and joy and freedom and hope that we can share to these people around us. Lord, for some of it's our, it's our family. And you know that we've been, we've been praying for them for a long time. You know that, that we have wanted them to come to a saving faith in you, Lord Jesus, for a long time. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the words, that you would give us an opportunity to share the gospel and that you would help us be persistent in that so that, Lord, they would hear that you, Lord Jesus, want a relationship with them. You want them, Lord, to come to a saving faith. You want them to repent. You want them to believe. That's your heart for all of humanity, that we would have a restored and right relationship with you, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, give us those opportunities to speak life and to speak hope. Lord, give us receptive ears to hear the gospel. And, Lord, give us a focus where we would invest our time and energy and our effort into sharing the gospel into fertile fields. That, Lord, your numbers of disciples here in the northeast region would grow abundantly because your people are responding in faith in Jesus Christ, stepping out in faith and sharing the gospel and helping people come to a saving faith in you, Lord Jesus. May that be what we are on about here in this place seeing your name praised, seeing the glory of God be lifted up and seeing people come to a saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we be part of that and not dormant. May you energize us for your mission here, I pray. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen.